Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Anne-Marie O'Dwyer chatting all things the psychiatry of cancer. I want to say that it's very common to be very distressed, to have a very prominent psychological response to cancer, that they are not alone, that lots of other people feel in that way, and that it's important for them to have information. Information is power, but it has to be the right information. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Good evening. The Manchester GP, Harold Shipman, is tonight starting 15 life sentences for murder, making him Britain's worst serial killer of modern times. Police found body parts in a Northside apartment, leading them to believe the man they arrested is a mass murderer. Rosemary West, on trial at Winchester, accused of 10 murders. Today Ted Bundy was first. possessed by evil, but he was possessed, too, of a fatal charm. Ted Bundy, Harold Shipman, Jeffrey Dahmer, Fred and Rose West. People who have murdered other people. Again and again and again. Why? I didn't particularly care for people. What makes a serial killer? A serial killer comes about by circumstances and like a a recipe. Why did you kill those people? No comment. No comment. And why are we fascinated by them? Each day, the courtroom is filled with spectators drawn by a fascination with Theodore Bundy himself or by the gruesome details of the crime. There is no question but what violence does uh, quicken the pulse of many people and certainly of young women. Try to imagine yourself in his place and see how he's feeling looking at the pillows with bloodstains and everything if, if he really did it or not. Books, films, documentary series... The serial killer market is hugely profitable. We just can't get enough of murder, horror, and psychopaths. Serial killer TV shows on Netflix. Today I'll be putting forth a mini catalog of serial killer shows on Netflix, which are worth giving a shot. To try and answer why we are so interested in them, I spoke to Craig Jackson, professor of occupational health psychology at Birmingham City University. Craig, Welcome back to The Bell Tell. We have spoken before about the horrific child murderer, Robert Black, a serial killer. I suppose my first question has to be, what makes a serial killer? Can we come close to answering that? Or is that too big of a question? No, it's a good question. I think one of the things we need to remember is that not all serial killers are killing for the same reasons. And we tend to think of serial killers as being this generic psychopathic individual who kills a particular type of victim when there may be a moon in the third quarter or when it's a third Wednesday of the month and that they have patterns and that they're only killing for one reason. 
When you study convicted serial killers, even just British serial killers going back to, say, the, the beginning of the 19th century, you'll find that there, there are at least four different groups of serial killers. You have your sexual sadists, people who are killing for sexual motives, and which may involve torture and rape. Um, Robert Black was clearly one of those you'll find that you get another group of serial killers who are working in healthcare as doctors or nurses or other professions who just kill their patients. They don't kill any other type of person and they don't do it for financial gain or sexual motives. They may be killing for because they're fed up of their patients or because they want to play God or there's some other deeper reason. But they're definitely different from the first group, the sexual sadists. You then have serial killers who kill three or more people they're doing it for financial gain. They inherit property or they, they murder someone and take their car and then they find another victim who they win over and kill them and take their property. So you've got a third group who are killing just for a life of crime um, to, to gain financial advantage and property. And then you've got other groups of serial killers who it's thought are doing it for thrills, who do it for kicks who aren't getting any sexual motive, who aren't doing it for so-called control or power, but they're doing it because impulsively it feels good. So to answer the question, not all serial killers are the same. So it's very hard to say what makes a serial killer. But I do come back to that point earlier on about you will keep on doing it if it feels good and nobody stops you. And that's certainly something we find with serial murderers. They do it through choice. They can stop when they need to. Some serial murderers can can go eight or nine years between killing. One of the one of the most notorious murderers in in America is the BTK, the Bind, Torture, Kill serial killer, Dennis Rader, and he killed ten people over a thirty year period. The rare glimpse inside the mind of a serial murderer. The BTK killer terrorized Wichita, Kansas for three decades. I got this fantasy. I started working out this fantasy in my mind. And once that potential, that person become a fantasy, I could just loop, loop it over. I'd lay up in bed at night thinking about this person, uh, the events and how it's going to happen. And it become a real, almost like a picture show. You know, I wanted to go ahead and produce it, direct it, and go through with it, no matter what the costs were. And there was up to seven or eight years between some of his kills because he was he was married with children and he had a job and a career and he was big in his local church. So he had other things going on in his life and he had to compartmentalize being a dad, being an employee, being a husband, being a serial murderer. And one of the things we're learning is that serial murderers in some cases are very good at compartmentalizing or boxing off different aspects of their lives. We're also understanding more about what makes serial murderers in terms of personality. And at the moment, we talk about uh, the dark tetrad. This is four core elements of personality that, that make some people darker and more willing to do bad things or dangerous things or harm others to get what they want than other people. So research is really looking at the dark tetrad personality, but there are limits to this. To give you an example, a few years ago, it was common knowledge that, that or common belief rather, that the McDonald triad could explain what made a serial killer. And the McDonald triad is basically this idea that if you have a young person and he tortures animals or he's unkind to animals, that he starts fires and he's an arsonist and he also wets the bed beyond eight or 12 years, 
if those three things are in that young person's life, then it's highly likely that he may go on to some kind of violent crime or violent offending. We generally know now that that is pretty much rubbish, but it was peddled by the FBI in the 80s and 90s as, as a real big behavioral clue as to what might make a serial killer develop. But we've moved away from that sort of thing now, and we're looking more about personality and learned learned responses, not being corrected, getting away with things, and a tendency towards deviant behaviour. You do a, a live show, The Myth of Serial Killer Profiling. Yeah, I, I, I'd say it's a lecture, it's a lecture that, that's also entertaining. We, we try and learn why profiling is not the science people think it is, and we try and show how some serial killers were able to evade capture for so long, and effectively how no serial killers were ever caught through behavioural or criminal profiling. Um, so it is an educational, but hopefully, you know, it, it, it's not, not, not too dry and stiff, and it is entertaining for some who are really interested in that topic. And in the show, you speak of people, and these names will be well known. We're talking Harold Shipman, Dennis Nielsen, Peter Tobin, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Did these people all have something in common, or, or, or are we talking about very different types? Or can we say that they had something in common? Obviously, they had something in common in that they were serial killers. Well, the four cases that you gave, one thing that they immediately have in common, of course, that, that, that jumps out to me is that they all used their jobs as ways of meeting victims or gaining the trust of victims and or disposing of victims' bodies. So the job you do and the freedom you have of the open road or not being anywhere in particular or being accountable is sometimes the greatest ally to serial murderers. But very interesting there, you talked about Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, when he was killing the young men that he was killing in Milwaukee, the people he were killing were mostly young gay men or men working as prostitutes or uh, young boys from poor black communities where the kids weren't being looked after as much as they should be. Dahmer was 33 when he told Nancy Glass about his twisted motive for killing 17 men. Not because I was angry with them, not because I hated them, but because I wanted to keep them with me. And uh, as my obsession grew, uh, I was saving body parts such as uh, skulls and uh, skeletons. And eventually I did uh, turn to uh, cannibalism. He was very carefully picking his victims. He was picking people who wouldn't be missed. Or if they were missed, people would not really necessarily worrying, maybe for the first couple of days or so. So Dharma, very quick, very cleverly, was picking people who won't be missed. As a consequence, there wasn't this fear that there was a serial killer at large in Milwaukee at the time because the victims he killed weren't being missed. So sometimes serial killers very carefully select their victims so that nobody even knows, or very few people know, that there is a serial killer operating among them. We saw this in the UK only a couple of years ago with Stephen Port, known as the Grinder Killer. He was a serial killer who drugged and killed four young men. And he also left all four bodies out in the public, out in parks, within a few hundred yards of his home. Four young men had died within a few months of each other. And the local police hadn't even realized that there was something going on. 
the, the deaths were attributed to misadventure with recreational drugs, usually things like GHB. So serial killers who know what they're doing pick victims who won't be missed, and it allows them to carry on operating without the police even noticing or even coming up with um, a profile or warning the public. So the killers you just mentioned there, using their occupations and their lifestyles to get access to victims who won't go missing, but often they're operating, we don't even know they're at large. If, if you look back to Fred and Rose West in the UK, the Cromwell Street murders, they'd murdered you know, the best part of nearly a dozen young women and, and girls in some cases. The police weren't even aware of those serial murders. And they're not isolated cases. There are many cases in the UK where serial murderers are killing and local police aren't even aware that there's a serial murderer. Trevor Hardy was another serial murderer in Manchester. Greater Manchester police didn't even know there was a serial killer at large until he was caught. So they are very good at operating in the fringes and in the twilight. Um, and the one thing we can do to try and prevent serial murder is take care of the people they choose as victims. So when I was a child growing up in the 80s, you know, we were afraid of Robert Black. I was literally in, you know, about 10 or 11 years old when Robert Black was killing children. And I remember on the news, the picture of Susan Maxwell in 1982, her photograph on the news whilst they were looking for her. I remember it distinctly. And the 70s and 80s were when serial killers could approach children they didn't know and take them. And then, of course, we had things like stranger danger and campaigns to encourage child safety. What that meant was that serial killers then had to change their victim group. So we now find that serial killers won't target strangers. And certainly since the Sower murders and the murder of Jamie Bulger, we've become much more protective of our children. So serial killers now hunt in other areas. They look for gay men. They look for sex workers. They look for runaways, strays, older people immigrants, people who aren't looked after as well as they should be by society. And those are the people that serial killers now gravitate towards when they're looking for their victims. So although I say there's no one, uh, you know, there's, you know, serial killers are different. There are a lot of commonalities in terms of how they hunt and how they operate that keeps them hidden and off the radar. Well, with the exception of Rose West, everyone we've discussed so far has been a man. It's been male. Is is that a factor? It, it seems so. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some female serial killers we know. We, we know of Joanne Dennehy, a, a female UK serial killer. We know of Eileen Wernos. And there are several more, uh, particularly in, in America and on the continent, incredibly rare in the UK. But again, I think it comes down to this issue of occupation in that men were free to have occupations and be on the road and travel and get access to victims when they needed to, obviously because of sex differences and, you know, how family structures are, females and, and, and girlfriends and wives tend to stay home and do domestic stuff and have the children while the men were free, as it were, to to go and, and misbehave. But this is one of the problems is that when when the FBI get involved in profiling unknown serial murderers, their profiles are quite vague. I'll give you an example. With Robert Black, the UK police did get in touch with the FBI and requested a profile of who might have killed, at that time, three young girls. Obviously, they hadn't 
uh, made the connection with, with Jennifer Cardy. And the FBI's profile came back and it was so vague that it was useless. They posited that the murder of, of Maxwell Hogg and Harper would be a male between 30 and 40, that he could drive, that um, he might have poor hygiene because he was likely to be single and therefore not have anyone to take care of his domestic needs, let's say. But the biggest mistake the FBI made was they said that the um, the, the serial murder, whoever it was, would have uh, not had any serious sexual allegations or convictions in his background. For some reason, they thought that this was a first-time dilettante killer, when actually we know that in the end, Robert Black had a prolific history of offending against um, girls, both as a teenager himself and uh, as an adult. So you know, the, the profiles of, of, of so-called experts from the Behavioural Analysis Unit will often say male 30 to 40, or even often they will go as far as to say white male 30 to 40. But we know time and time again, profiles are wrong. Uh, the FBI will attribute a series of murders to one killer when perhaps you've had occasions of two killers working together. The madness of two we often talk about. Serial killers don't always work solo. Sometimes they, they pair together as a joint enterprise. Can I ask you a final question? And I suppose, you know, I, I asked the question of yourself as a specialist, and I suppose I am asking the question of myself as someone who's chosen to make this podcast. And for the people listening to this podcast who have got to this point, this is a question also for them. Why are we so interested in serial killers? Yes. Um, I have to say, before I tell you why I think we're so interested in serial killers, I can tell you that this trend has been going for at least a decade and it's continuing to get stronger. The catalog of serial killer shows on Netflix, which are worth giving a shot. Serial killer shows have always fascinated us since the very beginning of time. It is one of those genres where we can picture ourselves in the character's shoes and virtually experience the thrill amidst this. And when I do open day talks at my university, lots of students will come up to me and they'll say they want to be a criminal profiler or they really like serial murder or mass killings. So the true crime genre has been going for about a decade in its current strong form, and it shows no sign of, of tailing off. There are more true crime shows than ever before, more podcasts than ever before. And of course, there are always horrific crimes happening. That's certainly not reducing. So in terms of why, I think partially it's the partially it's a prurient factor. People do love the grisly and the gruesome and to some extent we are ghouls we are a nation of curtain twitching purient people who like to see what other people get up to the nasty side of human nature i think also um it's this element that it could be anybody who doing it when you look at serial killers they are so ordinary and plain and some of them are very clever yes some of them are incredibly dull some of them are, you wouldn't even know they were serial killers. If you go to visit prisons, as I've done a fair few times, you will meet people in a prison who have, who are technically serial killers or who are multiple killers and mass killers. And you wouldn't be able to differentiate them from, from shoplifters. So it's the banality of it that it could be anybody. It could be your neighbor. It could be your school teacher. It's also fascinating. 
And, and I think on a more disappointing note, I think it's also that human life and human tragedy has become a commodity. And what saddens me is when I sort of take part in some documentaries or watch other documentaries, the way the victims are talked about just as numbers rather than people can be quite saddening. And, you know, we rate serial murderers and mass shooters and mass killers. We rate them by how many victims they had. You know, when we when we study mass shooters, we'll say, well, you know, the, the shooter at the Parkland School in Florida, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, he committed his mass shooting on the 14th of February, the worst mass shooting in any U.S. school. And he killed uh, 13 and injured 13. And we remember them by the carnage they create, which clearly does a disservice to the victims and their relatives and, and, and families. But I think it reflects this commodity. Um, I hate to say this once, but I was asked by a national newspaper in an interview, who was my favorite serial killer? Oh. And I just thought that is quite a bizarre question. But the, the, the journalist asked me with a straight bat, I think it would be an absolute genuine, and, and, and wanted me to sort of explain because of, was it how they killed them or how many they killed or how long they were at large for? I don't know if there is, but it wouldn't surprise me if we didn't come across, you know, a, a top trumps of serial killers um, with all those horrible sort of gruesome facts, because it is just commoditized. And for some people, it has become a form of entertainment. Um, but we often forget, you know, we, we can name serial killers, of course, but we often struggle to remember the names of the victims, um, which, again, the whole true crime genre does a disservice, I think, to the victims' memories. That's what I try and do in, in, in the talks I give is I try and do I do try and focus on the victims and remember them where we can, because these people may be sex workers or they may be uh, drug users, but they're also people's daughters and parents and siblings. And I think that's something that, that we probably need to interject into the true crime genre to have a little bit more victim sympathy and understand a little bit more about the victimology rather than just focusing on on serial murderers. Um, sometimes it saddens me when I have students on, on forensic and criminology modules approach me uh, and they will say that so-and-so is their favorite case or that they're obsessed about the such and such murderer. Um, and I often kind of joke with them, just say, well, you know, you need to take a look at yourself, really. And I kind of, I'm joking, but at the same time, I'm being a little bit serious because, uh, you know, I don't know, it's like saying, who's your favourite war criminal? You know, it's quite strange to me that, that, that people get so embedded into it as a form of entertainment. Ooh. Uh, Professor Jackson... It's distasteful, Professor, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, there's a lot to digest. Professor Craig Jackson, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale has been produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips were from Inside Edition, Fox 6, CBS, NBC, ITN and Filmaniac. Maniac.